you, Michael. Um, this uh, project was started when Bill Crank and Rudy Rosman felt that uh, there was never a real proper monument put up for these uh, basically unknown men who died so many years ago. Uh, we have Bill talk in just a second, but I want to thank those them. And we had this fence built. John Murphy and Michael Kane of Vagabond Forge were selected by the cemetery committee to create and build this fence. They built the uh, miners uh, pick and shovel motif, put the date on here. I think they did a wonderful job. And we had the Carlson uh, Memorials in uh, Grand Junction designed the memorial stone and benches. They chiseled Crested Butte Mountain Avery and Axtell where the Joke the Real Mine was located. Like I say, it was up that direction there. Um, here, they inscribed the names and uh, put the quotations on the interior of these benches. Uh, with that, I'll turn it over to Bill and say a few words about uh, how we got to here. My name is Bill Crank. Uh, I've had some association since about 1970 with the cemetery here mm -hmm. in different capacities. In the early 70s, I was the mayor, uh, and then in the 80s and 90s, I was the town manager. And I became aware of the Jokerville mine explosion uh, in about 1972 when Jim Wallace, a local resident and uh, town council member, built the, iron, the iron, steel and, and wood sculpture that is sitting back behind, uh, behind me in front of you. Uh, in the early 70s, but it hasn't always been there. It used to sit up by the chapel for, for many, many years. And then I came back in the 80s and had a conversation with Whitey Sporsich, who's a native old-timer here, and he knew a lot about the cemetery. And we talked about the Jokerville mine, and he brought me out here to show me where he thought the uh, mass grave site was. And I went back and did some deep research. I checked a little, about a 15 minutes in the town records to confirm that what Whitey said was probably accurate. So then I loaded up my pickup truck and my son and brought a bunch of railroad ties out here and kind of made a small enclosure kind of where the wooden steel sculpture is right now um, and then brought the sculpture down from from uh, the chapel and put it in place there and that's about all that was done for all those years and looking back on it was a very meager effort uh, to give some kind of recognition to the the men that were buried there so when I came back last summer uh, to spend about three months, actually turned into six months as the interim manager, uh, I was delighted to find out that they actually had a cemetery committee, since I always felt like I was a committee of one. So I went to one of their meetings and just suggested 
that they might want to, the committee might want to look at a project that would better identify and pay tribute to the miners that are buried here. Well, an idea is just an idea, and it takes lots of effort and fruition to bring it to reality. And that's exactly what the committee for the cemetery uh, has done. Uh, I look at this and think it's just magnificent. So I won't go on any further because there's nothing more I can say. Uh, and I, at least we are all here gathered today uh, in an event that's a little more uplifting than generally what we're out here for. So, uh, I, I congratulate the committee and the, and the uh, town council for funding it and for Carlson Memorial and the gentlemen, the two young fellows that built the fencing here. I think it's just a, a magnificent job. Thank you. Okay, one more thank you quick. Uh, Natan Bailo has been uh, doing some video and still photos of the building of the fence, of the carving of the monument. He's going to put together a, about a 15-minute uh, video of it. It'll be available at the museum. Is that correct? Uh, afterwards. So, uh, Next, uh, we're going to have Kay Flint speak. Kay has been on our cemetery <coughs> committee. Uh, her ancestors <coughs> lived in Crested Butte and were coal miners. So, Kay, if you would. school teacher voice will do or not but I hope you can hear it. Uh, please allow me to introduce myself. I'm Kate Flint and I reside in Gunnison. A few of you around here, not too many, know me as Frances Kay. I was born to Mike J. Stefanik and Frances Marie Yockledge and raised in the coal mining town of Cresta Butte. Yes, I am a coal miner's daughter, <laughs> as well as the daughter of an immigrant from Croatia. Coal mining is my family heritage. My grandfather, Philip J. Yaklic, came from Austria in 1902 when he was 17 years old and began to work the coal mines in and around Cresta Butte, including the mine at Floresta, the Peanut Mine, the Smith Hill Mine, the Baldwin Mine, and the CF&I-owned Big Mine in the town of Crestview. Working conditions in the coal mines were extremely poor. Safety of the coal miners was not a concern. The Jokerville Mine Explosion is a prime example of how little the life of a coal miner mattered. My grandmother Yaklich told the story about my grandfather having to dig coal while he was on his knees with cold water dripping on his head. That is why the union came into play. My grandfather worked long and hard to form the miners union so that working conditions would be improved. At one time, he was on strike from the big mine for one year, trying to get the union formed. 
Eventually, the miners' union was formed and conditions became a little better. Thankfully, Grampy Yocklidge was not seriously injured in the mines. Around 1906, my grandfather, Mike J. Stefanik Sr., came from Croatia to work in those same coal mines. He left his wife, Katerina, and a son, my father, in Croatia. After working in the coal mines for five years, he qualified to become a sponsor. He had a job, a place to live, and he had saved his money. He arranged for his wife and five-year-old son to come to America. They boarded a ship in France, arrived at Ellis Island, and rode the train to Crested Butte. My daddy became the oldest of seven children. While my grandma Stefanik stayed at home and took care of the family, my grandpa Stefanik worked in the coal mines. It was on a fateful day in January 1926 that he was seriously injured while working in the big mine. As was the custom, fellow miners brought him to the family home. He died January the 11th in the living room with his family at his side. The youngest child, Joseph, was but nine months old. Somehow, with the help of her oldest son, my daddy, and perhaps with the help of the Catholic Church and the Croatian Lodge, my grandmother and the children survived. There was no insurance from the CFNI, no widow's pension, no social security, no welfare. My grandmother never remarried and she never learned to speak English. 20 years later, when I was six years old, I remember life continued to be so hard for her. She was just one of the many women in Crested Butte who became widows when their husbands were seriously and often fatally injured in the coal mines, especially in the CF&I big mine, the very breath and life of Crested Butte. Daddy was allowed to finish eighth grade in the Crested Butte schools. As was the custom at age 14, he, he then entered the coal mines to work with his father. He married my mother, Frances, May 25, 1936, 35. Their son, my brother, Michael, was born in 1936. While mother kept the home fires burning, daddy worked in the coal mines. He was severely crushed in the big mine on a fateful day in 1938, when a quarter ton rock, 500 pounds, fell onto his head. Daddy would tell the story. My back was broken and I was split in the groin like a chicken. Again, as was the custom, the miners brought him to, home, to my home, to their home, brought him to my mother, 
at their home at 307 First Street, a little house on the rock wall. That was their home. It is impossible to have a sense of his pain as he lay in their home until the next day when he was transported by car to Pueblo, Colorado to the CF&I company-owned Corwin Hospital, some 156 miles away. Daddy was hospitalized for six months and never had a pain-free day again. He returned to his wife and son in Crest Butte and returned to the big mine where he operated the hoist. He had a wife and son to raise. Like other miners' wives, when daddy was severely injured, mother was left with a two-year-old son and no husband to help support her. She was fortunate because her parents lived across the alley and helped her through that difficult time in her life. Following that tragic accident, it did not seem likely that there would be more children, but God had a plan. I was born, <laughs> July 9th, 1940. When Daddy finally left the coal mine a few years later to own and operate the Snowy Range Beer Garden and Liquor Store, located at the IOOF building on Main Street, just across from the present-day chocolate factory, he would jokingly say, Yep, I graduated from the School of Mines. <laughs> Daddy's younger brother, Johnny, also worked the CF&I Big Mine for a short time. Uncle Johnny was working beside a fellow miner, Victor Nikolai, when Victor Nikolai was fatally injured. He walked out of the big mine that day, never to return. He began a career in Safeway in Gunnison. <coughs> the horrific Jokerville mine explosion was always the topic of discussion in our home. Mother often spoke of the fear that came over the town when the fateful whistle in the big mine blew a certain way, indicating that there had been an accident in the mine. She told how the town, especially the women and children, would rush to the mine and wait to see who was being brought out, dead or alive. When my daddy was crushed, she experienced that horror firsthand. Daddy often spoke of the lack of safety in the mines and the poor working conditions. He spoke of the carbide lanterns worn by the miners, the only light in the long, dark tunnels. He spoke of the canaries used in the mines. If the canary lived, there was enough oxygen. If the canary died, oxygen level was poor. He spoke of the high value that was placed on the mule saying they were treated with kid gloves. After all, if a mule was injured or killed, 
the owners of the mine would have to buy a new one. If a miner was injured or killed, they simply found another miner. Such was the case when his father died. The life of a coal miner was harsh. Many suffered lifetime injuries and many were crippled. Many suffered from the black lung disease, including my daddy. At the age of six, I begged and begged my daddy to show me where he worked. On a given day, he said, kid, I'll take you this one time, but don't you ever ask again. He knew the danger, so we did not go into the mine very far. I remember that day well. The big mine was dark and smelly and very cold and damp. I remember being very sad when my daddy told me how he worked five miles underground every day and never saw daylight nor the sunshine. Crested Butte was a CF&I company-owned and operated town. There, there was the company-owned big mine, the company housing, the company store, the company dispensary behind the company store, the company doctor, and the company owned and operated Corwin Hospital in Pueblo. Believe this, daddy was paid in company script, which meant that he could only spend his money at the company store. He also paid dues for using the bathhouse at the big mine. Work was not always regular, but paying dues to use the bathhouse was regular. My mother laughed when she said, after working a whole month, Mike owed the company one dollar. Daddy related well to Tennessee Ernie Ford's song, 16 tons. 16 tons and what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. In closing, I want to say that I have a vested interest in the Crest Butte Cemetery. I have five generations buried here. My great-grandparents are up on the hill, Jacob and Maria Kachiever, both sets of grandparents, Mike J. and Katerina Stefanik, and Philip and Francis Yaklich. My parents, Mike J. and Francis Marie Stefanik, my husband Jack Ostell Flint, our oldest daughter, Michelle Christine Flint. I will be buried here also. The project for the Jokerville Memorial has been a most rewarding and fulfilling experience. I am thankful to be humble and humbled to be part of the Crested Butte Cemetery Committee, which helped make this day possible and for the opportunity to share my family coal mining experiences 
and stories with you today. I want to thank the town of Crested Butte for the generous support they gave this project and so many other people on the committee. I especially want to express a special thank you to three women who work for the town. Thank you, Betty Ward. Where are you? Hey. Where are yeah. you, Betty? Thank you, Betty. Yeah, yeah. Betty. Woohoo! Deputy Town Clerk. Thank you, Molly Miniman, Design Review and Historic Preservation Good. Coordinator. Where are you, Molly? Yes. Molly. Thank you, Molly. Woohoo! Molly. And Jesse couldn't be here, but I want to thank Jesse Early also, Assistant Deputy Design Review and Historic Preservation Coordinator. Thank you for your many hours of work, really labors of love, and for your dedication to make, toward making this day a reality. 133 years later, following the horrific mine explosion, here is the beautiful memorial to the 61 coal miners who gave their all in the Joker Build Up. Again, I quickly thank the members of the uh, uh, cemetery committee uh, myself, Rudy Rosman, Kay Flint, Trudy Yaklich, Bill and Joey Wheeler, Valerie Hoagland, Joy Adams. Bruce Alpern, Glow Cunningham, Nancy Speedy, Marcy Tellender, uh, Ellen Osterling, Ruth and John Galowich, Joe Fitzpatrick, Deacon Vince uh, Ravelski, uh, Erica Woolman, Debbie Sporsich, uh, Joni Yaklich, John Mugglestone, and again the three staff people, Molly Miniman, uh, Jesse Early, and as a case that Betty Horn has been uh, kind of the point person. Um, <laughs> At uh, Scottish funerals, there was a traditional Scottish uh, song called Flowers of the Forest. If you would, Michael.
tough act to follow. <laughs> Thank you. In 1874, a surveyor named Ferdinand Vandeveer Hayden stood on top of Mount Tiakali and looked off to the north and saw two high mountains, and he called them the Crested Buttes. A little later on, they thought that one of them resembled a Gothic cathedral, and they named that one Gothic, and they dropped the S from the Crested Buttes, and that's why we got that great mountain looking high above us. When the silver boom in the Gunnison country began in the late 1870s and early 1880s, Crested Butte was known as the gateway to the Elk Mountains, the jumping off point to the towns of Irwin and Schofield and Crystal and all the other great silver camps of the area. The first people who came to Crested Butte were from Ireland, England, Scotland, Wales, Germany, and Sweden. Cousin Jacks and Cousin Jennies. <laughs> They were called that because they were the best miners in the world. And whenever anybody died, a miner would go up to the foreman and say, my cousin Jack can do that, and another man was on his way. Their names were Ross and Gardner and O'Neill and McCluskey and Kelly. When the silver boom ended nearly quickly as it started, Crested Butte turned to its destiny, and its destiny was coal. To the south, Buckley, Robinson, Pueblo Mines. To the north and the west, the Peanut, the Pershing. To the real west, Floresta. Up on the bench, the Big Mine. To the north, Anthracite or Smith Hill. But the greatest of them all in the early 1880s was the famous Jokerville, just west of Crested Butte, yards west of Crested Butte. The Jokerville bituminous coal mine was opened up in September of 1881 by the Colorado Coal and Iron Company, <coughs> excuse me, of Pueblo. Jokerville coal was perfect for producing coke. And in 1883, 50 beehive coke ovens of fire brick encased with stone had been built. The ovens were connected by a large track running along the top of them, which allowed coal to be drawn to the ovens by mule. The coal used was called slack or screen coal, with the lump coal loaded on railroad cars for market out in Pueblo. The ovens were then heated red hot, and then the slack coal was dumped into them and baked for 48 hours. The ovens were then allowed to cool, and then were watered out and drawn. Every 48 hours, two and a half tons of coke came out of those coke ovens and the CC&I turned out 50 tons of coke a week. In 1884, 30 men worked at the ovens. 120 men worked inside the Jokerville. Three shifts, 24 hours a day. The men who worked around the ovens put up with tremendous heat and smoke, but it gave these immigrants their first job in America. Crested Butte in the 1880s was vital to America's industrial revolution. Coke from the Jokerville, later lime from the limestone quarry on the east side of Monarch Pass, met molten iron in the steel mills at Pueblo. In 1856, Henry Besmer of England invented the blast furnace, and all three of those commodities were in that blast furnace, and jets of air were blown in to drive out more of the impurities. 
What was left after this process in the blast furnace was steel. Iron melts at 2300 degrees. Steel was absolutely indispensable to the U.S. Industrial Revolution. And in the 1880s, the Colorado Coal and Iron Company steel mills were the only steel mills west of the Mississippi River. So Crested Butte had a tremendous role in the early days of our Industrial Revolution. Crested Butte's great coal mine, however, was dangerous. It had a reputation for potentially explosive methane gas that was odorless, along with a lot of rockfall. Yet by 1884, heavily loaded Denver and Rio Grande trains carried coke and coal out of the East River Valley, sometimes with a hundred cars, pulled over Marshall Pass by three engines, a triple header. Everything changed on January 24, 1884, and Crested Butte would never be the same. At 7.30 in the morning on a snow and cold morning, just after the morning shift had ended the Jokerville, a tremendous explosion occurred. 200 feet from the entrance of the mine, a flame of fire and smoke blew into the mine and smashed one of the fans which supplied air and ventilation inside. Several of the surrounding buildings outside of the mine were on fire. The fire coming from the entrance of the mine and the dangerous accumulation of gas inside prevented any rescue work. Outside of the entrance, families gathered in silence, praying that their men inside were safe. It was not to be. All of the men working in chambers one and two were dead, most killed instantly by the blast. Inside the mine, rails were torn up, ore cars battered beyond recognition, timbers scattered, and coal walls shattered. Johnny Cashian, working 800 feet from the entrance of the mine when the explosion occurred, left 10 men a third of a mile inside of the mine, and after a half hour broke into the open, giving hope to those outside. However, 17 miners, uninjured by the blast, who worked their way to within 200 feet of the mine entrance, ran out of air because the giant fan was smashed and they collapsed in sight of safety. 61 men died in the Jokerville explosion, the worst mining disaster in Colorado history up to that time, and still the third worst up to today. Miners came from Baldwin and Anthracite to help their Crested Butte brethren in getting bodies out of the mine. They worked in parties of six, and it was 38 hours before the last body came out. The dead men were put in the blacksmith shop with a card attached to each as they were identified. The coroner's report said that the men had been badly mangled by the blast. Not until February the 2nd, nine days after the explosion, was the last of the 61 bodies brought out. On January 28th, four funerals took place with the Masons and Odd Fellows burying their members. The next day on the 29th, 46 miners were buried in a common grave. Funeral services began at City Hall in the afternoon, and the Protestants took 30 minutes for a service. And then Father Quinn of the Catholic Church took an hour before jammed City Hall with hundreds standing outside. At three o'clock, a procession formed in front of the Elk Mountain House. The order as it moved to the cemetery was slays with coffins, 
miners in charge of Foreman Robert Gibson, then Doc Shores of Gunnison, the sheriff and his officers, then friends and citizens, and then Father Quinn and the Alder Boys. The snow to the cemetery was three feet deep and no road had been broken. Despite this, all members of the funeral procession walked to the cemetery. The Gunnison Review newspaper said, it is very stormy out here today and the ceremonies have been carried out with great difficulty. In the aftermath, even though the coroner's jury concluded that the Colorado Coal and Iron Company was not at fault for the disaster, it was obvious that the company had been negligent. Geologist Arthur Lakes declared that the roof was poor and, quote, a ticking sound is heard constantly from the escape of gases in the coal. Doubtless, the coal of this mine contains the greatest amount of gas in the state. In addition, the law said that two entries were required for a coal mine, with both covered by fans, and had to be 300 feet apart. However, the Jokerville entries were only 60 feet apart. Many miners knew the mine was unsafe, and they left weeks before the explosion. Robert Gibson, the foreman, had been only through the mine six times in the previous year because he considered it too dangerous. James Richardson, the superintendent responsible for checking the gas, had been fired for neglect of duty a year before by the Colorado Coal and Iron Company and then rehired only five days before the explosion. However, the jury concluded that no blame was attached to the company. Crested Butte, at the time of the Jokerville explosion and then much more in depth later on, as Kay said, had company housing, a company store, company playground, and workers were paid off with script. The Jokerville coal miners faced appalling conditions in the mine, as did coal miners across the nation. They faced falling rock, explosions, coal dust in the lungs, were paid slave wages, and were often cheated on the amount of coal that they mined. Many were killed and maimed in the mines. It was commonly accepted by the CF&I, as Kay mentioned, that a mule was worth $70. A lot more than a man. You could always get a man. The Crested Butte miners lived at that time in an area that was not appealing, much different than we see in this beautiful surrounding today. Tremendous pollution from the coke ovens, hillsides denuded of trees, which were used for mine props and railroad ties and homes, and mine wastes, which contaminated the water. In spite of all of this, the immigrant families of Crested Butte were happy for the opportunity to come to America. They were self-sustaining in how they lived. They had great gardens, made dandelion wine, picked mushrooms, and got most of their food by hunting and fishing. If coal was the heart of Crested Butte, these great people made up its soul. They were optimistic and courageous in the face of tragedy. They remind us today of the lines of a great song called The Rose. And I want to read about two paragraphs. When the night has been too lonely and the road has been too long, and you think that love is only for the lucky and the strong, 
Just remember in the winter, far beneath the snow, lies the seed that with the sun's love in the spring becomes the rose. As we honor the 61 immigrant coal miners here this afternoon, I would like us to think of the words of the great writer Stephen Spender, who said this, near the snow, near the sun, in the highest fields, see how these names are faded by the waving grass and the streamers of white cloud and whispers of wind in the listening sky. The men who in their lives fought for life, who wore at their hearts the fire center. Born of the sun, they traveled a short while towards the sun and left the vivid air signed with their honor. And we leave them with a legendary Irish farewell. And I love the bagpiper. <laughs> May the trail rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sunshine warm upon your face, the snow fall on the mountains around you. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the hollow of his hand. Okay, um, a couple things after this. Uh, we just saw we get together at Kachiers, anybody who likes to, and raise a drink to these men who died so many years ago. And, and children, unfortunately. Um, I got here when I was 28. Daniel McDonald died when he was 28 when he was here. What a different life he had or didn't have. And so many of these men were young. I think Dwayne said there were only five or six family men of all the people here. Didn't have any connections. They've been forgotten for a long time. But today, on behalf of all the people of Crested Butte, I want to rededicate this grave site to their honor. With that, um, on the back of your cards are the lyrics of Amazing Grace. We're going to sing the first three verses if you'd like, and then that's it for today. <laughs> <laughs>